Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. The year was 168 B.C. A Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. That's Antiochus Epiphany for the rest of us. That's the, the scholarly way of saying it. First time I heard that, it was like, who in the heck is he? If you remember in Daniel... He gave a history of what was going to happen in the nations. And after Babylon, there was the Medo Persians, and then after that, the rise of the Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire was, in Daniel chapter 8, was, was given as a male goat, and a big horn came out, and it would go out, its feet was, was would he go through and and speed had speed such that his feet didn't even touch the ground. But then the big horn would be broken off and four would be horns would come out of it and four heads in the leopard in Daniel 2. This was the Greek Empire and that horn represents who? Alexander the Great. Considered a phenomenal general. Conquered the then known world by the age of 33 and died when he was very young. As an emperor of, of the Greek Empire, uh, he had some weird ideas, and one of them was he decided not to appoint an heir. He basically said, let my generals fight it out, and the, whoever is the strongest will be the next king. And so that Greece was then plunged into civil war for more than 30 years, and finally peace evolved, and it evolved into four kingdoms, two of them being prominent. One, the Seleucid Empire, which would take today, think of modern-day Syria, and stretching far to the east, almost the whole way to China. And the other empire, the, the, the nation that came out of it, was referred to as the Ptolemies, and it covered an area which we would consider modern-day Egypt. Now, he came to power uh, in an unusual way, through intrigue, there was murder, suspected, brother murdered, sons, you know, all, the, all that kind of family intrigue. He finally emerges as king. But there was always this tension between the two kingdoms. And uh, the, the Ptolemies, the king of the Ptolemies, heard about Atticus coming to power and thought because of all that confusion, they would be weak. So he plotted an attack. But somehow... Antiochus found out about it, and he preempted. And he goes in and he sweeps through into Egypt, all the way up to the city of Alexandria, almost like the speed of Alexander the Great. But he gets to the city of Alexandria, and he can't conquer it. He's laying siege, but they're standing strong. And so eventually they wind up suing for peace, and they agree to a treaty and he withdraws his troops. But before he actually gets the whole way back to his kingdom, the Ptolemy emperors basically did the proverbial thumb the nose. And they said, you know what? We decided we're not going to adhere to the treaty. So how do you think Antiochus would respond? You think he took that lightly? Oh, okay, that's all right. No, he turns his troops around, marches back, marches through, again comes to the city of Alexandria. 
And again, they lay siege to it. But this time, he decided to expand his attack, and he sent troops also to the island of Cyprus. Now, there's also some little intrigue in the sense that the Ptolemies had a treaty with another empire that was growing, and that was the Roman Empire. And it just happened that when he attacked and surrounded the city of Alexandria for the second time, an ambassador for the Roman Empire was there. And this ambassador goes out to meet him as they laid siege, and he's speaking to Antiochus. And he's encouraging him to withdraw. And Antiochus is kind of, you know, proud thinks he's the next coming of Alexander the Great. After all, look how he swept through Egypt, even though he couldn't destroy and lay siege to the city of Alexandria, which bore the name of Alexander. He still kind of had this vision in his mind. And as they were discussing, Antiochus basically said to him, you know what, let me go back and discuss this with my generals and my advisors. And as the story goes, the Roman ambassador took his walking stick and he walked around Tychus Epiphany, drew a circle. And he looked him in the eye and said, you'll make your decision now. What do you think Tychus Epiphany thought when he did that? Did you ever hear the expression, I had an epiphany? A sudden revelation? This is actually the story where that idea comes from. And Tiger's epiphany understood that if he stepped outside that circle, we may say he crossed the line. He was going to be at war with the Roman Empire. And he was a smart enough general to understand he didn't have the power to defeat them. And so he withdrew. But his pride was hurt. Have you ever seen a bully or someone who's full of pride and their pride gets hurt? What do they do? Do they go back and crawl into a corner and weep? Or do they decide, let me go find somebody weaker than me that I can pick on so I can restore my pride? And that's exactly what he did. He attacks the city of Jerusalem and subjugates them. We'll come back to that story a little bit later and what he does. Let's open up with a quick word of prayer before we dive in. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, how are you behind the cross today? You know, the times we are living in, you have foretold us we know we are living in the last days, the last seconds. If, if there's any kind of description, we are basically on, on the edge of the toenails. If we even just lean forward a little bit too much, it's like we will fall off. We know this is how close your coming is. We've just got done kind of on the downside of a, of a worldwide pandemic, something that's never been seen before. Now we see war breaking out that makes absolutely no sense. People on both sides being lied to and tricked and... and the devastation, and we know that it breaks your heart and it breaks our heart. We pray for those on both sides that they come to know the one true living God. But you have warned us and foretold us this, Father. 
And my prayer today is, is that just as Antiochus had an epiphany, a revelation, may those who hear this sermon today have another greater revelation, a revelation of your glory and of your majesty and of your mercy. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The title of today's sermon, Holy to the Lord, Lessons from the High Priest's Garment. We just, got done, we just got done studying the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, we learn that Christ is our high priest. And it's a reference back to the tabernacle, the exodus. And so, what does it mean to be the high priest? It's the head priest. But, so let's go ahead and read in Hebrews. And so we're reading in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Now hold that slide for just a second. You see the picture of the garments of the high priest. We're going to talk about that today. But in scriptures, what does garments typically represent? Character, righteousness. And how does God, through the prophet Isaiah, describe our righteousness? I'm sure you have this already memorized. Next slide. But we... Like all unclean things. And how much of our righteousness? All our righteousness are like what? You know, the uh, translators sometimes have difficulty uh, in properly translating things. Um, and there was much deeper than filthy rags, bloody rags. Do we understand that even our good deeds, if we were to take all the good deeds that every single man, woman, and child has done from the foundation of the world all the way up until Jesus comes, they still would do nothing. We cannot do anything on our own. The Apostle Paul understood this when he says we are, what trespass? We are Dead to trespass. And how much can the dead do some? We can do nothing. We cannot save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do that can have God love us more. There's nothing we can do that would have God love us less. There's nothing we can do to earn his favor. Too often we see in Christianity, and hopefully not within our own denomination, and hopefully because this is one of the messages that has to go out about God's character, God is not like us. If someone, yeah, thank you. If, 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 if somebody does something nice to me, what's, what's my likely response? I'm going to be nice back to them. But if somebody does something bad to me, then what is my likely response? 
I've joked before that sometimes I sit back and think of being Joe, the weakling. I think I've become the fighter, boxer, Joe Frazier. And I'm nothing like him in so many ways. But that's our natural response. God is not like that. God is not, as we might say, transactional. There's this image of pagan views. If you remember, in the pagan idea of, of a god was is that if things are going smooth, the gods are happy. But if you, something bad happens, like a, like a pestilence breaks out, or the harvest isn't good, or a hurricane comes along, or bad weather comes along, or an earthquake occurs, or maybe you're in battle and you lose, that somehow your god was angry with you, or the other god was stronger, and you have to appease that god. And so I have to offer a sacrifice to appease him. And if I offer maybe a, a sacrifice of a bull or a goat or, or a lamb or whatever, and it doesn't appease him, then, then I've got to do something else. And it grew to the point where mankind became so, so depraved with their understanding. They began offering children and virgins. This is how depraved they and become. And we like to sit back and think, well, we don't have that kind of idea with God. Yet I will tell you, Christianity is infected with the same pagan ideas. How many people believe that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was to appease the anger of God? That's paganism. He died as a substitute. He paid the ransom. When you pay ransom, who do you pay ransom to? The malefactor, the person who, who did the kidnapping. Who's our kidnapper? God or Satan? So who was the ransom paid to? It was paid to the malefactor. People seem to struggle with that and understand that. But this is why the Apostle Paul probably found it so difficult to preach even to his own people because they had been infected by the same concepts of God. I've got to follow those concepts. We've got to keep them all. After all, why did we spend the, the, the 70 years in Babylonian captivity? Well, we didn't keep the Sabbath, so, oh, we've got to keep the Sabbath. He was actually serious about that commandment. So how do we keep the Sabbath holy? i got an idea. Let's not carry a mat. I got another idea. We, we shouldn't walk more than a Sabbath day journey the length of the camp because God would frown upon that. Oh, I have another idea. We shouldn't take two, two pieces of thread and, and wind them together to make, to make rope or to make the curtains for the tabernacle. Now you may sit back and think, oh, by the way, you know what? We, we shouldn't write more than two letters because that would be work. And he doesn't want us to work. Does this sound absurd? It gets even better later on because they actually, in, if you read in the Jewish traditions, they actually started to debate that if a chicken laid an egg on Sabbath, should I eat it? Can you believe that? Do you see where religiousity, our misunderstanding of God's character, can lead to utter foolishness? And let us not laugh at them because we can create our own little traditions. 
So what can we learn about Jesus, about him being the great high priest? And today I want to focus on the meaning of the high priest's garments. And so what I'd like to do next is take a quick tour of those garments about the different parts and pieces, because, and, and then we're going to break it down to, to take a look at some of the meanings. Now, I can't go through everything today because it would take way too long, more than the five hours I'm allotted to speak now. Uh, um, but let's go ahead and let's bring up the next group of slides, bare feet. And so in this picture, now the Bible actually doesn't tell us that the high priest wore bare feet when they dressed up in this fancy garment that God instructed Moses to make for Aaron and his sons. But tradition has it that they did not wear sandals because, again, who did they represent? They represented, and they would be the representative to go to God, the communication. They're the head honcho. They're the one that would communicate. That was the idea of the expression that Aaron, just as, as he, you know, when Moses was being sent by God to, to Egypt to bring his people out to be the instrument through which God would work to free the Israelites, he said, I'm going to make you, to, to Moses, I'm going to make you as God, but Aaron is going to be your spokesman. And we see that, that God the Father is still in heaven, but who became the spokesman for God here on earth? Jesus, the incarnate. God became human flesh. And so the idea that when Moses was speaking, he, would, he was told to take off his shoes because he was standing in holy ground. And so for this reason, they believed that the high priest would not wear sandals because he was standing and doing holy work. The next, the next item, if you can see, is, is that there was a tunic. And this particular one was, had a checkered pattern in it. So it, had, so it would not be perfect in the sense of, you know, the perfect clean white, white shirt that someone may have. That would be the one layer. Then the next layer would be going to the robe. And over the tunic, the priest would, wore, would wear a blue robe. Now, God was very specific about the color, and we're going to come to that a little bit later. And along that, he was told to put bells and pomegranates on it. The next, ephod. Now, the ephod is like an apron. And the ephod was to be made of gold, blue, purple, crimson, and fine-twisted yarn. We're going to talk about the colors in a bit. This is why there's multiple colors. There's, there's emphasis on the colors. And when they talk about gold, they're not talking about, by the way, gold-colored thread. They were actually talking about gold made into thread. The next item, breastplate. On that is the breastplate. It is referred to as the breastplate of judgment. And on it, there were, there were 12 stones, each stone having a name of one of the tribes of Israel. And in it and behind it, they would have something called the Urim and Thummim. Now, we're not going to talk about that today, but it was kind of a way of God communicating his desire one way or the other. What should we do? Should we go left or should we go right? And God would answer through these stones. How they actually work, don't know. Everybody speculates on them. Nobody really knows. Even the great experts and stuff. And then, of course, the breastplate stones. And then the next is the shoulder stones. He was actually had stones on the shoulders as well. And in that case, six names were written on one side of the tribes of Israel, and on the other stone, again, six. Again, bearing, bearing the idea of he bears the weight for the nation of Israel. 
The next one, the turban, sometimes referred to in the older translations as a mitre, and he would wear it. Again, it is made of the fine linen. And then finally, there was a gold plate. Kind of a crown was worn to be worn over the turban, and it was to be worn specifically on the forehead. In honor, it said, Holy to the Lord. We can go ahead and go back. Holy to the Lord. Let me talk a little bit about some of the interesting features of weaving. I don't know how many people are familiar with the Temple Institute in Israel. If you go to the web, type in Temple Institute. This is a group of Jewish people who have, through donations, are preparing to build a third temple in Jerusalem. Because in their mind, the Messiah has to come. They have ignored the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. All of the things I'm going to show you today and more about that represent Jesus, they don't see how sad, despite all of the beauty. Now what's interesting in the, the tunic, or excuse me, the robe, the robe was actually to be sewn and weaved in a single piece. It was not to have a seam. Now they believe that the shoulders were woven in, but the garment itself was to be seamless. What do you think that represents? If garments represent righteousness, what do you think a seamless garment represents? Would it not make sense that it represents the sinless nature? The same way the sacrifices were to be without blemish, that it's representing the unblemished nature? But this was a human priest that was wearing it. And he was far from blameless. But it did teach us about Jesus, does it not say? And remember at the cross, they cast lots for his garments. But when they came to the one garment, it was what? Let us not tear it because it is seamless, representing the fact that he, while tempted in all ways, he was tempted in a way, quite frankly, folks, that you and I will never, ever comprehend. Imagine being God. Imagine having the power Imagine when the adversary comes and says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. That's not a temptation for you and me. He didn't say, if you are the Son of God, ask God to turn it. No, 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 no. He said, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. How many people here have actually fasted for like three days? I know, just kind of... Anybody here have done 10 days? Anybody here actually done 40? I don't know about anybody else, but how difficult can it be to even fast one day? But to do it for 40. And then to have someone come along and tempt. And you have that power. 
But what did Jesus do? Today's Sabbath school lesson, we talked about the fall, and I don't know if it was discussed this morning, I missed it, um, but I caught last night and we discussed how the fact that one of the mistakes that, that Eve made is, is that she actually engaged in a conversation with the serpent. Jesus never did. And if you go through the scriptures, you will see examples after example after example that we are not to engage in a conversation with the fallen enemy because we are no match for his wiles. Remember, he deceived one-third of the angels in heaven who were in the presence of God, who had no reason to question his goodness, and yet he was able to take and twist it and turn them. So if he could deceive one-third of the angels who knew only the goodness of God, yeah, I heard someone laugh. What chances do you think you and I would have if we did not, if we were not shielded by the blood of Christ? How long do you think you would last? You know, I remember one time many years ago doing prison ministry, and the chaplain there was not at the particular prison, was not friendly to Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> Imagine that. And there was a special program being held that I was not told about. And all of the denominations were invited to do a presentation to participate in this particular special event in a prison except the Seventh-day Adventists. Except me. And even before I knew this, when I walked into the prison, I will tell you, there's only two times this has ever happened to me. I'll not share the second time. But this was the first time that I actually could sense and feel that like there was a wall of evil angels standing there. There was a sense of fear and dread over me that I had never ever experienced before. And my impetus was to turn and run. And in my innocence, not really perhaps realizing the danger, or perhaps being mature enough or whatever, I said a short prayer because I knew I was in danger. And a peace came over me that I cannot describe. Those kind of things don't happen on a day-in-day-out basis for us. Thank God we are shielded by the blood of Christ. Thank God He sends His angels to shield us, to help us. Because let us not fool ourselves. There isn't a single one here. I haven't met anyone yet. No man, born of woman, have I ever met. Think of the best of the best in our denomination. People that you would look up to that would have the ability that if the blood of Christ was not covering them, if the angels withdrew and they were left to stand alone with the adversary, they could not stand. No man can stand. We need to remember that. And so when you think of that, that tunic, that, that robe that, that the high priest is wearing, the seamlessness, think of the sinless nature of Jesus who as God was tempted in ways that we will never ever comprehend 
at a moment's notice, do you not know, I could ask ten legion of angels to come. And yet he said, no, let's go through with it. Holy unto the Lord. Let's go next to the section, the next group of slides. Now, most people, and, and early on when I studied the sanctuary and heard about it and started studying and everything, I thought that that fancy garment that the high priest wore was the only garment that he wore. It turns out that there are actually two garments that the high priest would wear. The fancy one, which we just walked through, and we're going to cover a little bit more detail on a couple other things I'd like to bring out about it, um, was worn year-round for the daily ministry. And part of that daily duties that the high priest was, is the high priest alone, was to trim the lampstands. In addition, on the Sabbath, the high priest was to sit down with the rest of the priests and they were to share the bread. Not on Sunday. Sabbath. And so one was worn year-round, the other was worn only on the Day of Atonement. And that's the simpler garment. Basically white. Go to the next slide. And it talks about the high priest garment, the fact that, it's, again, it's made. There's a breastplate, the ephod, a robe, skillfully woven tunic, and a, a turban, and there was also a sash. We're going to talk about that in a second. But on the Day of Atonement, next slide, please. He shall put on a holy linen tunic, linen trousers on his body, and he shall be girded with a linen sash, and a linen turban he shall be attired. Day of Atonement, all the fanciness is gone. The breastplate of judgment, the bearing the weight of, of Israel, holding God's people close to his heart, interceding, has now been finished. The Day of Atonement was the most solemn day in the religious calendar because it was the day of judgment. He who will be righteous, be righteous still. He who will be be unrighteous still. Those are the words. If someone wasn't right with God on the Day of Atonement, they were to be cut off from Israel forever. Just as the final judgment, those who do not make peace with God, who do not respond to His love and His mercy, will be cut off forever. You know, the prophet tells us, as much as I pray for His coming, we're actually told we shouldn't pray for it. Even though it's going to happen. Because on that day, imagine you, a mother or father, losing a child that's dear to you. The Lord is going to lose billions on that day. It has to happen. It will happen. But it does not mean that we should be happy about it. And that's why we should be not lured into a lull, thinking, well, things are starting to get better. We need to understand that they're not going to get better. They are only going to get progressively worse. Things that don't make any sense are going to continue to happen. 
not only throughout the world, but even in this country as well. So let us not get fooled and lulled in thinking, if anything, learn from nature, it's the calm before the storm. And you may be sitting back and saying, calm? What, what the heck is Joe talking about? Anything but calm. Is there anybody here that's not going through some struggle? I am. I don't know about anybody else. I know my wife is. I know many of you here have lost loved ones. Some of you are struggling financially. All of us have something. Satan is doing everything he can to hide the cross so that we can't see it. Our battle is to not let Satan take away the cross. Our battle is not to fight Satan, by the way. That's his battle. We have no chance. The battle is the Lord's, not ours. Our battle is to keep our eyes on the prize, Jesus. Let's go ahead and skip the next slide. Making of the ephod. Let's go to the next one, please. Thank you. The ephod is an apron. Fancy word for an apron. I don't know why they just don't call it an apron for us simple folks. But they shall make an ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. Next slide, please. This is kind of a blow up. This came from, I got this and grabbed this from the Temple Institute. I didn't mention earlier with the Temple Institute, they have recommissioned and rebuilt altars, the laver, the seven-branch candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. Rumor has it that they have prefabbed already the walls and everything of the temple so that the second the order is given, the claim is or the belief is that they could erect the temple in less than 30 days. Even faster than when Nehemiah saw the repairing of the walls. Next slide. This, if you can see, this is one of the weaves that they use to make the priestly garments. The thread in the, the second image, my left, your right, uh, the, the thread that was used to make the, the, the apron. There's that other, the gold thread. Keeping in mind that gold is so precious but so malleable, you literally can do it. I forget, it's something like thinner than your own hair. You can make gold and it still will hold together. That is how malleable and pliable. So what's the meaning of the colors? Next slide, please. There's gold, there's scarlet, there's purple. And of course, gold has several different meanings in scriptures, faith being one. But when it's referring to God, it's referring to what? His holiness, his purity. The scarlet is just a name for red. And what does red represent? Blood. Purple is royalty. But what about the color blue? You know, I'm a list person. It's good and bad. And uh, I love to collect lists. And one of the lists I love to collect and add to, to my, my toolbox, as Gary would say, are Bible symbols. And what are the meanings of colors attached to them? And one of the things I discovered is that symbols often have both a positive and a negative meaning to them. Think of a lion. 
You might think the positive of Jesus is the line of Judah, or you could think of Satan like a roaring lion. It seems like Satan has a counterfeit to everything God does. Everything, without exception. And what I found interesting about this whole idea of blue is, is that when I go to the various websites, and there's a lot of wonderful websites out there with, with awesome information, collections of information freely available. You no longer have to be a theologian, go to a theological library, or go to school and college. You can gain more information that you can ever possibly consume in probably five lifetimes, unless you lived as long as Methuselah, but I don't think we have even that long. We certainly don't have that long for Jesus to come back. And what I find interesting about blue is, is that blue is always associated, without exception, with creation. I like to read the scriptures. The meaning that God gives blue, not man. And this comes from the story... Where are we on making the color blue? Let's go to the next... This is actually numbers, should be numbers. And I'll read, I apologize for that. And again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is Numbers 15, 37 through 39. This, by the way, is the story of the man picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And Moses didn't know what to do with him. And he took him to the Lord, and the Lord said, take him outside the camp and stone him. This is the instructions that the Lord gave Moses after that. And this is Numbers 15, not Exodus 15, I apologize. Reading, and again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. Next slide. And you shall have the tassels that you may look upon it and what? Remember the commandments of the Lord and do them. And he continues that you may not follow the harlotry to which your, whose heart? Our own heart in our own eyes might be inclined to. So what does the blue represent? Next slide. Next slide. The law of God. I find it interesting that Christianity would ignore such a plain text. There's a lesson to be said in this. And what is that lesson? What did Jesus say about the Pharisees in his time? Listen to what they say. Do not practice what they do. But in today's world, we have access to the Bible. Do we realize that it's, what, about 500 years ago? A little more? I could be put to death for having this. There are places in the world today the same can happen. And if my understanding of scriptures is correct, we may not be that far off. Even in this country, that same thing could happen. We are not to forget the law of God. Let us move on to the hem. 
And I talked in the children's story about the pomegranates and the bells. Now, I, I, I need to, I did some research on this, and, and I don't know if you heard, um, or if you ever heard anybody share the idea that on the Day of Atonement, they would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle. If he'd go in, should something happen to him and he die, they could pull him out. Um, Jewish authorities on this and the Talmud and what have you say that that's somewhere, that idea kind of came out of folklore somewhere in the Dark Ages. They don't know who first did it. It's a story that cut, catches on and caught on because it kind of catches our imagination, woo, you know, from that standpoint. It is a serious issue for the high priest to go in to the presence of God. Whether or not they actually had a rope on doesn't matter to me. Folklore or not, it is serious business to go inside and, and speak face to face. Moses, who was God's, as he said, I speak to you not like as other men, I speak face to face, so to speak. But even he was not allowed to look upon the very face of God. When he said, show me your glory, he says, no man can see my face and live. And so he puts him in the cleft of the rock, puts his hand over and walk, and only seeing the back of God, the glory that covered him, when he comes down, the people were what? Put a veil over your face. We can't stand to look at you. You're shining. Now I have a question. Did Moses know his face was shining? What does that tell us about how we should be? It is nothing that we do. No matter how righteous you think you are or think you might be, how good you think you are, how many good deeds you do, how many bad deeds you do, do not think for a single second that our righteousness has anything to do with salvation. By grace, through faith, to do the works of who? God. And you have to have all three, by the way, folks. You know, there's a joke about, you know, people like to sit back and say, well, God didn't give a 10% discount on the commandments. Well, you know what? God didn't give a third, third percent discount on the plan of salvation. We are not saved by grace alone. Grace is what God has done for us. Faith is how we respond to that in a positive manner. And then the work is going and telling others about His goodness about his mercy, about his love. That he is not like what we as Christianity, and we have to take some ownership of it because we are Christians, what Christianity has presented to the world. Number one reason that I personally have encountered with people why they reject the idea of God is that they reject the idea that God is love, but if you reject him, he's going to burn you in hell for eternity. Blasphemes God. That idea, by the way, came out of the early Greek believers bringing their culture of Plato and Socrates and the mythology of Zeus and the god of the underworld and blending it in with the church. 
So what is the robe of the hem? The idea of pomegranate and a golden bell. Now a bell does what? Rhetorical question. It makes noise, right? Makes a sound. Quality of the bell, it may make a great sound, you know. Sometimes it can be a bad quality bell, but for, let's say this, this was likely a good quality bell. Would we agree with that? But the pomegranate, now we saw with the pomegranate, the pomegranate had many seeds in it, and it was the color red. Next slide. I don't know how many of you are familiar or can remember these stories. There were two times in the nation of Israel when they were coming out of the Exodus that uh, they whined and complained. Of course, I've got to rephrase that. They whined and complained the whole time, right? Uh, but they whined and complained, particularly we have no water. And so the first time is when they first come out and Moses goes to the Lord and the Lord tells him to do what? He tells him to strike the rock and out of water. Just before they're ready to enter into the promised land, as they're nearing the end of their journey, again the people clamor and say, you know, the Lord has brought us out here to die of water, and we don't have any, we're going to die out here in the desert. And Moses again goes to the Lord, and the Lord tells him this time to do what? To speak to the rock. But Moses, being a man, 40 years bearing the whining and complaining of God's people to the point where he intercedes and says, Lord, Lord's ready to strike them down and take my name out of the book of life. Let them live. But in his moment of weakness, which we all have, and we all can be brought to this point, his threshold was just a little higher than mine, however. And instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it. What's the rock? Jesus Christ. What's the water represent? Pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Striking by his stripes, we are healed. The first time Jesus came, he was nailed to the cross. He suffered the penalty for our sins. But the second time, the prophet Isaiah tells us, as Luke repeats it, says, you see the signs coming, look up and shout because our redemption draws nigh, draws close. Do you see the beauty of, of how this garment teaches and how it complements other stories in the scriptures? This is how scriptures is to be unfolded and understood. Always looking for Christ in the symbolism. But let the Bible define it. Because I don't know about you, I don't have much of an imagination, but when it gets going, it can be pretty wild sometimes. And so we've got to stick to the scriptures. And what does the scriptures Share with us. And this is why Paul, in the next slide, why you can understand Paul now, if you think of that pomegranate in the seeds, why the Jewish people were thinking they were the seed. They were the offspring. But Paul says, no, 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 no. In Galatians 3.16, he says, now to Abraham and his seed, where the promises were made, 
He does not say two seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is what? Christ. That first covenant promise that we talked about today in Sabbath school lesson, I will put the enmity. He didn't say, I want you to put the enmity, because we have no power to do it. I will put the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And this brings us next to the golden plate. And it reads in Exodus 28:36. By the way, if you want to read more in the full details of, of the, the garments, go to Exodus chapters 28 and 39. 28 is where the Lord gives Moses instruction. 39, where Moses is repeating, we now have made them and are being presented to the Lord. And he says this, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it an engraving of a signet. And it says what? Holiness to the Lord. Next one. And you shall put on it a, what color? Blue cord. Then it may be on a turban, and it has been on the front of the turban. Next slide. And it shall be on Aaron's what? Forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. Next slide. And it shall always be on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. Next slide. That word signet, I, I don't know why what translators, they have a difficult job. Don't, don't misunderstand me. They have a difficult job because there's, there's every word could cause someone, if you get it wrong, can cause someone to misunderstand things. But I, one thing I do not understand is, is why they decide to take a Hebrew word and translate it five different ways. Because this idea of a signet in the Hebrew is no different than a mark or a sign. And where is that mark and sign? It's where? 20th century science finally caught up to the Lord. And they realize where are our moral decisions made? between thine eyes on the forehead. Why is it that the Lord instruction for the high priest garment, holiness to the Lord, is here and not here or on my feet? Why do you think that is? Is he trying to teach us something that we cannot earn God's grace? We cannot buy it. I can't earn it by doing good deeds. Even sharing the gospel and bringing someone to Christ. Well, that is a good thing. It does not earn me salvation. This is why you read, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not preach in your name? Did we not heal in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And yet, he says to them, I don't know you. What does 
Those got to be some of the saddest words in all the scriptures. And understand something. At least I'm, I'm talking to myself on this one. I can fall into that same trap. And so can you. The second you start saying, I, I can do this. I can overcome. You've already fallen into the same trap. We can't do it. This is why the Apostle Paul declared those profound words, it is not I, but Christ in me. Here, where the decision making is, I don't understand everything, I don't know everything, I know I have no chance if the Lord pulls back and leaves me alone. But as long as I have faith, as long as I keep my eyes on the goal, and that goal is Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Satan is doing everything he can for every one of us to blot out the cross. None of us are exempt from it. And it's only going to get worse. We have not seen what it's like or experienced what it's like in this country we may get some imagery of it in what's happening in other parts of the world. But we have not yet experienced it. I don't know about anybody else, but I've had a pretty easy life, all things considered. I've never had a day where I went hungry because I didn't have food or money. My understanding is at least two-thirds of the world can't make that same claim. Holiness to the Lord here. And so I leave this with you. You may have heard about the Hebrew Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy. There's actually a whole liturgy, many scriptures, but these are the ones that we're most familiar with. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall what? Love the Lord your God with how much? All your heart. Say it with me. All your soul. And with all your strength. Next one. And these words which I command you today shall be written where? In your heart. Is that not the promise of the new covenant? I will write my law in your minds, in your forehead, and in your heart. In verse 6, 7, And you shall teach them diligently to who? To your children. And you shall talk to them when you sit in your home, and when you walk in your way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. In verse 8, And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. We talked about the meaning of, of being the mark or signet being on the forehead. It's our faith. It's what we believe. It's the moral decisions. We do have a choice. This idea that Satan made me do it doesn't fly. It's found nowhere in Scripture. Satan can't make us do anything. Oh, you know, he can tempt us. Oh, he can tempt us in ways that, oh, he can tempt us. But he can't make us. 
There is a freedom of choice that God has given each and every one of us. And so I leave you with this. And the hands represent our actions. But remember what Jesus said. If we look lustfully upon a man, we have already committed murder. If I hate my brother, I've committed murder. Made a couple mistakes here, but you got it. (laughs) So my question is this, and I'm not here to poke fun and make light of it. But when God says, bind the law on the forehead or on the hands, do you honestly think he's asking us to make a little miniature ark write in tiny little letters on pieces of Ten Commandments, stick them in there. Or do you think what he's really asking us to do is to reflect his character of mercy, compassion, and justice? I hope today's lesson that somewhere along the line, you that are listening, you that are here, that there was a revelation, an epiphany. See, epiphany went and when he attacked after he left and got with his tail between his legs and left the city of Alexandria, he decided to go kick the cat. And the cat turned out to be the city of Jerusalem. And he conquered the city of Jerusalem. And he desecrated the temple, bringing in Greek statues of Greek gods, sacrificing unclean animals on the altar. He declared that he wanted to crush the Jewish culture. And so he outlawed keeping the Sabbath. He outlawed circumcision. And those who chose to remain loyal to God rather than capitulate, were forced to have a dot on their forehead. I have no doubt that this history is why when Jesus spoke about the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of to come, they were sitting back and saying, wait a minute, it it, it already happened. And yes, that was a desecration and the Lord took care of it. But Satan was creating a powerful counterfeit because he knows, I believe, the plan of redemption. And he's doing everything he can to distort it. So he has convinced almost the entire Christian world that the idea of the mark of the beast is a computer chip embedded either in my hand or in my forehead. A few years ago, wasn't long so that they thought, oh, the barcodes are the mark of the beast. Because somehow there was some numerology in it that the number 666 appeared. The mark of the beast is nothing else than enforced counterfeit to what we just read. The Shema. The great commandment. To love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. How's the mark of the beast described? Those who worship the beast. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt worship God and Him alone. 
The second commandment, we're not to bow down to any man-made idols. What do those who worship the beast do? They bow to his image. Third commandment is not to take God's name in vain. What does name represent? Just like garments symbolize righteousness, name symbolizes character. What is our character like? So we either take on the character of Christ, allow him into our lives to change us, or we come like the beast. And then the final mark, the portion of it. Whom do you obey? Remember the disciples brought before the Sanhedrin after Jesus' death and resurrection. Charged, don't speak of Jesus anymore. And their response, you decide whether it's right to obey you rather than God. We need to decide, is it right to obey God in keeping his seventh-day Sabbath holy when the rest of the world is going to be telling us we need to keep Sunday? Gracious Heavenly Father, I give it to you. I hope today's message was pleasing in your sight because I know that I struggled with this message in preparing it like I've never struggled before. But may it be a blessing and a revelation to everyone about your true love and your true character. In Jesus' name we say, together, amen.